Hey everybody, this is Paul from Make Teaching Sustainable, and I want to welcome you to the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. Today, we have Jill Nettles joining us. She is a National Board Certified Teacher in Early Middle Childhood in Art, with 15 years of teaching experience in both public and private school settings. She says that she keeps coming back to teaching because she understands that her teaching experiences are not just intrinsically rewarding, but also central to her own personal growth. Jill and I first became acquainted through the Sustainable Teaching Project, and I'm super stoked that she is here to chat with me today. Jill, how's it going? Well, hello, Paul. Good to see you. You too. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Um, well, let's let's dig right in. Tell tell us all a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What's your story? What's your role? And what keeps you coming back to education? Okay. Well, I am a person who teaches visual art to students that are aged five to eleven and twelve. So I'm working with early childhood students. I'm I'm a national board certified teacher now, um, just completed my maintenance of certification process, which was fun. Me too. And yo, oh, congrats. Yeah, you too. Wow. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. Thank you. That was, uh, um, not as brutal as the whole board's the initial certification, but still really helpful and, and robust. So I was grateful for that opportunity to go through that again. Um, let's see, I work currently at an, uh, independent school, though most of my experience is in public schools. So I have about 13 years of public school experience. And then just last year, I transitioned to an international baccalaureate independent school. So that's been a really big shift for me in my practice. Um, Let's see, I originally was more interested in being a scientist, uh, marine scientist. But then uh, as I was going through that coursework, I was taking art classes in addition to that. And I just really felt like super pulled to that world um, rather than lab world. And because I'm a more social person and I went, took tons of classes during my science coursework and just decided to make the change, which was scary and a big risk, but I'm really glad that I did because um, I found teaching. It's something I've always done Um, through high school. I taught Uh, my high school dance team. I was like the person that made all the choreography and like taught everybody. Um, And then I would teach summer camps as a young person. And then as I was going through my art uh, degree, my advisor was, was just, she was talking to me about like, Hey, what's the next step? And I thought, well, I don't really know. Like, I guess I'll just be a professional artist. And she's like, well, what do you currently do for, to make money? And I was like, well, I teach these things. She's like, why don't you pursue it? So I did, I went and got my master's degree in art education, which opened up a whole nother world of, um, of self-actualization for me. And so I've just been on that path since then. It's been windy, um, but I really feel it's where I'm supposed to be. And I keep coming back to it because uh, it, the practice of teaching for me is similar to like art making in the sense of like you have these components um, that that you use in teaching. You have these skills, you have this body of knowledge, and then you have this class of, of 
of children. Right. And then there's all these unknowns and, and it's like this exploration. It's this like creative act of teaching, I feel. And so I, I get this sense of like when I'm teaching and when I'm doing, when I'm really in it and I feel like I'm pursuing excellence in it, it's like making really good art. And that feels really good to me. And so that's what keeps me coming back. And when I see the progress of my kids and I see that, that they're making sense of themselves, that is just like, Oh, love it. Keeps me coming back. I love that. I've always, I've always felt that teaching was this sort of intricate mix of science and art, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I teach math, I teach reading, I teach writing. I, you know, I teach the, the, I guess the more like cold, hard academics, but it is that, that the art of teaching also is what makes, what makes me come back. Right. It's what fascinates me about, I was talking to someone yesterday about this actually, that like, like it is that idea of never having perfected it, that there's always something new to create that, that makes it so intrinsically engaging for me personally. Um, okay. So we definitely connect there. Also, it's so funny. Did you say you were like a, you were a chore- you choreographed things in high school? Did you say, is that right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was on my high school dance team. I was on my college dance team. Loved it. So I was in show choir in high school. And I was also, I can't believe I'm actually going to put this out in the world for people to know, but <laughs> whatever. Um, I was like dance captain my senior year. <laughs> Me and my best friend, actually, my best, my still my best friend to this day. We were like the zero, zero couple dance captains and show choir, just like complete nerds. So I love that we connect over that too. <sighs> right. That element of performance, right. That's also an aspect of teaching. When yes. you, I mean, I'm not saying like you're on stage, but there, it, there's something about emoting and like conne- that connection to your students and that connection to your audience, I feel is very invigorating. You so artfully brought that back to teaching when I was just ready to go down the show. <laughs> <laughs> I love well, that. I'm sure, I'm sure that experience played a part, right? In you're your right. You, it totally did. You're absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> all right. So let me ask you. You know, we're we're talking, I want to talk both about unsustainability and sustainability mm. today. Let's start with the unsustainable so that we can get into, so we can end on a high note or end with solutions. What mm. do you observe, you know, given obviously your context, your situation, where you're currently mm. teaching and your lived experiences as a teacher, describe mm. some of those conditions, practices, resources that you believe to currently be unsustainable. Yeah, oof. Well, I'm thinking back to the years in public school first, because that's where most of my experience was. Um, as a, as an art specialist, right, um, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is unsustainable was the, the loads, as, um, because we were expected to cover teacher planning periods, which that's how the schedule works. That's the nature of, of our, that felt like the primary role <laughs> of me being in that building was I'm a place for students to go. So those grade level teachers can get their 45 minutes of planning. Right. And that was like heavily communicated to me um, in many ways, even though I've people to my face were like, of course we appreciate the arts. Of course we want our kids to have art class. Like, you know, and I believe that to a point, but most of the, most of the messaging that I got was like, your teacher planning. And that's, that's the bottom line. And so, okay, having said that, well, here I am, you know, we're getting 
you know, I saw over 500 kids a week, which is, I think, on the lower end of a lot of what specialists um, teach. It, and then, you know, you're teaching six 45-minute classes a day, back, mostly back-to-back with no transition time. And you're, you know, you get your 45 minutes of planning, but that's not accounting for material preparations or cleaning up or anything like that. So for the most unsustainable thing was like the, the load, the, the actual load. And then the lack of like time for me to process what happened in a day, like the, the day would end and they would kind of tack on my planning time, either at like the very end of the day or the, in the very beginning. So there would be like this time where I'd prep in the morning, in the morning planning, or I would be like cleaning up in the end. So there was, if I wanted to truly reflect on what my, my students did, that would have to be extra time. And I think most, I don't know for sure, but I felt from speaking to my colleagues and at the school was like, that was most everyone's problem is you have these loads, you have all this content, you have all this activity, this learn, these learning experiences that you do throughout the day, but then to sit and really think and reflect on what happened, that's extra time, right? Like that's time that you need to pull out of your day elsewhere, out of your work day to do. And that part of teaching is super crucial to not only the kids, but to you as a practitioner. It's like, that's a big piece of, of how you improve. That's a big piece of how you guide students through their journey and it was just unsustainable every year for me. I just felt like I was always behind and I was always, I, I felt like it was just, I was never enough. Like it was never going to be enough. And, um, and also as a specialist being, being isolated, I was the only art teacher in the building. And yes, there were 17 other elementary art teachers in my district, but we would see each other maybe once a month for like an hour so then we're expected by the district to then come together and align everything and compare results. And it's like, okay, whoa, like that's a big ask of, of us. And I know like in an ideal world, like that practice would have been embedded in our week to week, day to day. Maybe we would have, you know, collaborated, and, and, you know, online. And then the meeting up would have just been like an extra piece of it, but it just felt like there was never enough time. And then of course funding, right? Like resources of materials. Like we were, I was, had 500 kids at a budget of just over a thousand dollars for the year. Right. So it just was like, you know, we used a lot of recyclable materials, which was great, but it felt like, come on, you know, like, look, like really break it down. Like, let's look at this. And, but that's like the best they could do. So yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. Yeah. So that's for me the most unsustainable. It was just the time and the resources and just that connection to other professionals and feeling like I was really a part of the team. Yeah. But I mean, and what's tricky about these conversations around sustainability is there are some things outside of our control and there are some things within our control, right? So like the... Mm-hmm. And there are some things that are easier to change and there's some things that are harder to change. So like the resource thing, I mean, that came up time and time and time and time and time again in the data. And I think it's self-evident, right? Everyone knows that schools are under-resourced and underfunded. Yeah. It's going to require like policy change for schools to be funded better, you know, not to say that we shouldn't talk about it because we definitely should talk about it. 
Um, but like some of the other things you said, I think are more within schools or administrators or even teachers loci of control. That idea of self-reflection is really big, right? That you're, when your day is so packed, you know, and we can question where that comes from, right? Why, why do we, why do we pack teachers days and kids days so full? Well, it probably has something to do with like the culture of work in our country. And that we believe that like, if you have time and you're not using it, it's time wasted. And that's pretty toxic. But, but this idea, and I guess I hadn't really thought, I haven't thought about this in a while or lately. And I'm glad you said this, but just that idea of having time to reflect, right? It's like having that quiet, those quiet moments where you can just think um, is so important to sustainability so that you can figure out what worked and what didn't work and then make those changes. And if you don't have time to do it, then you really are just going to be spinning your wheels and that will lead to burnout. Absolutely. And also with that self-reflection piece, I mean, that doesn't mean you can just be sitting alone. And I know, you know, teachers have PLs, professional community time, like common planning, all that. But that, again, those minutes are also heavily dictated by administration, right? So they have expectations about how those minutes are used and the accountability on that varies. But, you know, we had to turn in notes and it had to have a breakdown of like what exactly we talked about had to mostly be concerned with, with, with data. Right. And um, it just felt like that time that that self-reflection time needed to be more human, which I know that you talk a lot about that in your new book. And that, that really, uh, it really comes back to the humanity of it all. And I think that there's just not enough recognition of our, our, our days, the kids days too, of just being human beings. And I think if there was more time and focus and, and, honor of that, then the culture piece of school would start to flourish a bit more, right? Because then there's this culture of like caring and this culture of reflection and this culture where you're thinking about, you're thinking about the wellness of everybody. You're thinking about, this is a full day. People are bringing their full selves to their day every day. And you know, their intentions are good and the, the children are counting on you right? To, they're trusting you. The parents are trusting you to make this experience of their schooling a positive one um, when a lot of things are stacked against you. And I think if there was just more time to honor the humanity of it all, we would be all, we would all benefit. And I think, I, I mean, I don't know how, how school can really address that, but um I know in my new placement, there's just, they, they allow for it. Like there's, because it's, it's a private school, they have the ability, right. To provide that. And they, they, they value it. Like I have way more time to plan and I'm way more connected to my co work, my co-teachers. And I really do feel like that for me has given me a huge lift in my, my practice and a huge lift in like who I am as a person. Cause I'm like, now I'm finally feeling, Oh, like, This is what it feels like when I can truly connect with the other people who are invested in these kids' lives in a very meaningful human way. And that feels really good. And the kids notice and they pick up on it. And it's, um, it's been really eye-opening for me. I mean, speaking my love language, one of, one of my love languages with talking about humanity, because it really is, I mean, when you, 
when you actually take a second to to zoom out and look at a lot of the things we do and you start to see how dehumanizing a lot of schooling actually is, it's very jarring and kind of upsetting at first, you know, and it's almost like sometimes I I get a little bit, um, I don't know, upset's not the right word, but just kind of taken aback and maybe a little resentful too that like, we even have to have a conversation about humanizing teaching because it's, it's that bad, you know? And um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm glad you brought up that idea of humanity. Cause I think too, right. Then you think about the results of humanizing, humanizing teaching and in the sustainability context, but also just from a moral perspective, like one, it's the right thing to do because kids are human beings. Teachers are human beings. They deserve the dignity and respect that human beings deserve. Right. But then also we can think about it from a more clinical perspective and how humanizing schools can actually support sustainability. If kids and teachers and administrators and coaches and parents feel like their humanity is seen and they feel like they matter, they're more likely to engage in the, you know, collective responsibility we all have with sustaining learning in schools, right? The energy demands of of sustaining learning in a school are really high. And oftentimes it's just put on the teacher to sustain that, right? But when we build agency, when we humanize learning, when we create these inclusive spaces where kids go, I want to be a part of that, then they they have a hand in sustaining learning. And it makes it's like, and this is at the heart of sustainability for me. It's good for kids, it's good for teachers, it's good for everybody. It's not about kids, or it's not about, sorry, it's not about teachers just sitting back and doing less work. It's about working smarter and doing Mm -hmm. things that are good for, that are mutually beneficial to teachers and students. Yes. I'm perfect point for me to jump in. So I'll give you a story. In my last, in my last school, I was a teacher who prescribed to a practice, a pedagogy of like discipline-based art education. It's how I was trained. I didn't really know any better. It was just what I learned. So it's like teacher creates this project. Kids learn about some history probably related to the artists that inspired the project. And then the, they replicate it, right? I did that for like six, five, six years, okay? And um, it was so exhausting and draining. And I just like, I was beating my head against the wall. I'm like, this just isn't working. Like, it's just unsustainable for me to teach like this. And for a variety of reasons, uh, I was doing most of the work, right? I was doing all that. It was all my energy. It was all me. And then I, variety of things happened. One of which was I went to a state conference here in Washington and I met a man named Ian Sands, who's a, a tab teacher, which is teaching for artistic behaviors. It was new to me. He was our keynote and he showed his students work. His high school teacher showed his students work just like blew me away. I, these kids were creating like beautifully authentic work that was theirs, you know? And, it, and he's like, this could be it. Like all kids can do this and this is how it's done. So I went down that hole of like, what is this? What's tab? What's teaching for artistic behavior? Learned all about it. Um, there's books by Kath- Catherine Douglas and Diane Jaquith, which are two people that really um, led the charge with it, along with a person named Jim Crow back in the East Coast in, in Massachusetts. So I read all the books, did the training, went to Tab Institute, Mass Art, and I came back to my homeschool and I switched my whole pedagogy. Like I am now putting the learning in the hands of my students. They're the artists. 
they make the choices. So I create, now I'm the architect of the environment, right? So I'm setting up my classroom to be a studio, like an honest studio where there's like media organized, everything's labeled, like they have access and I'm teaching conceptual knowledge. I'm teaching skills. Like that's all there, but I don't spend the whole 45 minutes doing this. I spend five to seven minutes doing this, right? Just a, a bite. And then then I'm obsessing that assessing them through the lens of studio habits of mind, right? Which comes out of project zero. And it it was just like that whole box that I was in just like blew apart. And I, and I just started to see teaching for what it really is. It's this experience, right? You're cultivating with your kids, with your students, you're creating this experience with them that you are facilitating for sure. Like I had a huge role, like the planning that goes into it is, is, is intense and it's very intentional, but you know, I, I, they're all equally a part of it. So their energy, their work is just as much, if not maybe even a little more most some days than what I'm pumping into the experience. So it's mutual. And I remember my professional learning community of art teachers, which were mostly doing the more discipline-based approach still, they were just like, but what do you do? Like, it's like, you're just kicking your feet back. And I was like, I invite you to come observe. Like you should come see, I'm walking around. I have my notebook. I'm interviewing them I'm taking notes that I'm giving them individualized instruction. Kids are teaching each other. You know, they all have all these levels of abilities that they come to the classroom with. Let's leverage that. Let's let's leverage their interests. They're they're making community because they're connecting on the work that they're creating. They're giving each other feedback. And then that's a whole set of skills that you cultivate with them. It was like how to talk to each other about the work. And and it's like this like beautiful um sustainable energy machine that 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 just like it, it it actually I would say it's like net positive energy like I think those kids leave that space with more energy than they came in with and it's really hard for them to stop which is my biggest battle is like getting them to stop and clean up because they don't want to they just want to stay and I, I remember like a lot of those teachers were just like well then what like they couldn't understand the role of the teacher and and like because you weren't the person that was like doing everything and I'm like you just gotta try it like it's and I that honestly that's another big reason why I come back is because I get energy from it I love that I mean you don't hear people say that a lot that teaching energizes them you know a lot of people just say it really drains them and Mm -hmm. uh, that's exciting gosh there's so much there like I hear things about as I've, as I've been exploring this work in sustainability, you know, part of it is, part of it is what we're doing, right? It's the pedagogy. Part of it is that. And that, you know, like, I think it's tempting. It's kind of seductive sometimes to say, well, teaching's unsustainable. The system sucks and I can't change the system, right? And it's like, well, yes and no. Like there are some things within our control as teachers that we can do right within the constraints that we're you know supposed to work within and mm-hmm. it sounds like you made a choice to shift the way you were teaching because the way you were thinking about teaching changed right and i think we have to do both as teachers we have to be really critical of our preconceptions 
about what teaching actually is in order to work towards sustainability. So, you know, teaching, this is core belief for me now, but I, I don't think everybody feels this way. You know, teaching for me is not, I'm the smartest in the room and I'm going to tell you all the stuff that I know. Teaching for me is, I have an agenda here. I want you to learn some things because I, as, because I, as the adult in the room, value those things enough for you and think they will serve you down the road. And, you know, I work with little kids. So like a second grader may not always understand why I want them to learn how to read, but I know that it's really important for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my work is really about creating these conditions in the classroom where kids find relevance in these things. And that is, and and, yeah, and it's not about me just telling them things and, and centering myself as the expert in all things. And that's a really big shift for some teachers. I think, unfortunately, some teachers became teachers because they wanted to be the smartest person in the room, right? And like, it really, it can't be about that if you really want to like enrich the lives of kids. And also it can't be like that if you want to find sustainability because gosh, it's exhausting to be, to position yourself as the expert in everything because then you don't learn, you know? And it sounds like you learn a lot from your kids. Yes, the inquiry process, right? That I think, and I would let's let's give those teachers that want to be the smartest room the benefit of the doubt. I would imagine they got to that point because they engaged in an inquiry process that was like very fulfilling and de- and definitely felt like they were growing right from their experiences. And then so there they they're presented with this opportunity right to come in and be like this is what it's like to be a learner right. But then there's this disconnect because then the inquiry process stopped with them, and it's not something that is central to the practice being purposive to like the questioning like like you're saying relevance to the learning it's like the all any experience that those kids bring to the to their learning is relevant and 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 your job as as a teacher right is to is to stoke that inquiry process right like help them see the work that that is that they can do related to the content you're trying to teach them about. Like in my school, we have units of inquiry that kind of threads through their, their learning and they have themes, right? So like who we are would be a theme in international baccalaureate and their inquiry might be like, you know, like something to do with emotionality. Like what, what are emotions and things like, and then you can, all subjects can address that right it's like you can talk about that um through music you could talk about that through uh i mean let's say this stretch for mathematics but i'm sure like if you went in an inquiry process you could like find a way to make a connection to that and i i really believe that that's kind of what gets i just think about like when i've covered for classroom teachers like the the teacher manuals that they would leave with all the sticky notes and being like, teacher says this, student says this, you know, the scripts. And I get, I understand why they're there. I understand how they got there. Right. But what I don't understand is where the human part of the kid's inquiry comes in. You know, where's the time for that? Like, it would be cool if it would just have like the inquiry statement Uh, in that textbook and then like possible discussion points. And then it just said like discuss or like break into small, you know, I don't know. I just think, uh, yeah, it's like, it just almost puts a blockade up to the inquiry process. I think there's, there's a balance that we need to strike with planning. Right. And 
Because what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is that like the whole script of it all, it sort of takes away the ability for learning to emerge, right? And learning emerging doesn't mean we just sort of let things happen, right? Learning, and actually this, when I was working in San Francisco, there was a huge misconception around emergent curriculum, right? Which is very like Reggio Emilia, you know, that that emergent curriculum was like very little planning. And it's like, no, it's actually a lot of planning. It's actually way harder than didactic. I'm going to stand in front of you and tell you a bunch of stuff, right? It's really, it's yeah. way harder than that. Um, and I found sustainability in anticipating student responses ahead of time, not so that I can create a script, but so that like I can think through what are some of the misconceptions going to be? And also what about the kids who already know what's in this mini lesson, right? How am I going to like move that ceiling a little higher for them? So I, or maybe, maybe not higher, maybe deepen that for them so that they can still feel challenged and like they're getting something new out of it. And so that I, that idea of anticipating responses is, is challenging work, but it's it's also emergent. It's, it's yeah, but I find it to be sustainable. When I first started doing that, I used to like write all the responses down and like plan my teacher moves and everything. But once I did that a bunch of times, I found that I rewired my brain and that I didn't have to write all that down anymore. I sort of had found patterns in like tasks or in different areas of the curriculum. Where like, I'd be like, okay, this would be a concrete strategy. This would be representational. This would be abstract. This isn't math, you know, but like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure as an art teacher, you have a similar, similar, like there's similar themes throughout different areas of art. And this idea of the habits of, of our artists, right? I can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly what you called it. Habits of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that to me plays into competency-based education, right? That these are transferable skills that not only serve your kids later in the year, but also will serve them in future years, which adds to, adds to sustainability. And I think sometimes we, I don't know, like people are, people either view those skills as kind of a waste of time because they they have other things they need to do, or they just don't see how that actually enriches the classroom and makes your job easier in the long run. Yeah. I wonder too, because I have the advantage of, observing and assessing kids over the span of six years, if I'm lucky, right? So I get this really long view on development and which is cool for me because a kid, let's say pick a studio habit of mind, like envisioning, like how do we mentally create steps? How do we see ourselves through a process of something? How do we do imagining? And what, how do artists do that? How have they done it? How do you, how would, how do you prefer to do it? Right? Like here's a bunch of strategies or let's practice this one today or whatever. So like you could see how a kindergartner would approach that versus how a fifth grader would do that. Right. So I had the benefit of being like watching a kid grow and being like, yeah, they're, they're envisioning skills. Like I can see them now, like not just going with their first idea. I could see them kind of playing around. I can see like, I, at this point, like they're, they're trying it this three different ways. Like they're, they're talking to their class, their neighbor and asking them what they think, like they're getting feedback now. And so there's like these milestones that you see along the way that for me is super valuable and will benefit them in all of their studies. And what what I'm hearing too, and this might be just layering my perspective on top of what you're saying. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, what I'm hearing is a shift away from product oriented assessment 
towards yeah. process oriented assessment. And yeah. like, cause, cause you were saying before about how they're not, you're not, you're no longer having them replicate some artists work. Right. Yeah. But instead mm-hmm. you're teaching them, uh, let's say like enduring understandings or transferable skills that will mm-hmm. help them connect with themselves and then create something new. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to invest in the process. You have to invest in like nurturing their ability to envision, to use your word. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. And that's such a repositioning of assessment in the classroom. Cause it's really about, it's more about the story. It's more about the qualitative side. Like I'm guessing you can't, I mean, maybe you do. I mean, some people might be able to do this, but like, it's hard to put a quantitative metric on envisioning, I would imagine. And then instead mm-hmm. it's more about like, this is what envisioning is. And I would have, I'm assuming your feedback is more like just tweaking their, their envisioning based on whatever they're working on that day and whatever challenges or strengths you see arise. And it's not quantitative. I mean, I was, is it quantitative? Well, let's say, okay, let's say we have a mini lesson on envisioning and the, the focus is like artists, artists, how do artists ask what if questions in their process of making work? And then you could spend a few minutes talking about a specific example of an artist doing this. You could show a video clip of an artist doing this. You yourself as an artist could demonstrate this. You could have a student demonstrate it that you know who's proficient and that you've observed. And then you talk about it, right? You discuss it. And then, okay, for the last few minutes, I want you to turn and talk to your neighbor um, about a this piece of artwork that I'm going to show you. How would you, as the artist, like ask a what if question about this at the stage of the process? Okay. Jot down your answers in your sketchbook or share out loud or turn, you know, that I could assess did, were they able to then ask a relevant what if question related to the process of making something? What if we added blue? What if we added a layer of oil pastel? What if they tore it up? What if they, you know, filmed it? What if like, so it's like that, that, that right there, I could sit, I could sit there and mark that they did it. Right. But then more importantly is like, okay, then that was the the prompt. What if in the studio they're working and I'm at their table and they're in the middle of something and they're, they turn and say like, what if I tried this? Or like they turn to their friend, their friend says, what if you, have you thought about this? You know? And there it is in action. And that, that, that means that they, they've chosen to do it. They have found the moment that it's important to use it. And that is for me mastery, right? They've got it. I love that. Like, it's like an authentic application of what you've, of what you've taught them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jill, I wish we had more time to chat. Cause I feel like I could talk to you forever about this <laughs> It's been really for me personally. Cause I mean, you know, like I'm a, I'm a generalist. I, my background is in reading, writing, arithmetic, mm-hmm. um, and it's so great yeah. to hear these kind of universal truths that span yeah. all the disciplines, you know, this idea, these ideas of competency-based learning and leveraging the workshop model, right? To to do those small mini lessons and then give your kids time to explore. And I really appreciate your thoughts on self-reflection too, and just giving teachers time to breathe. You know, it's like yeah. in part it is, in part it is to like help them give them time to rest, but also like it is so that they can reflect and become better teachers. And those are just some of the, I think the nuggets that have come out of this conversation for me today. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And um, can you tell folks a way, ways they can get in contact with you if they, if they want to? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm on the Mighty Networks app. If you're not familiar, it's an app you can download. And on there, you can find um, the Teaching for Artistic Behaviors group. I'm there, and I think you can just look me up directly with the username of Jill Nettles, N-E-T-T-E-L-S, Jill, J-I-L-L. And um, you, you can message me that way. And uh, I'd welcome anybody that wants to talk more about teaching. I love, I love it. So thank you so much, Paul. I was really glad I got to spend time with you and reflect. <laughs> yeah, this was reflection time. Woo! Um, yeah. Well, thanks again so much. Well, friends, that concludes this week's episode of the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. I want to say a really special thank you once again to Jill Nettles for joining us today. As a reminder, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Sustain Teaching, and you can learn more about the Sustainable Teaching Project at MakeTeachingSustainable.org. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, I would absolutely love to have you. You can just shoot me an email at paul at maketeachingsustainable.org. Thanks a lot and have a great week.